You're listening to the DolphinsTalk.com Podcast Network. Welcome to Dolphins Talk Weekly, your one-stop audio breakdown of all of this week's Miami Dolphins news. Now, here is your host, Kevin Dirt. Well, good morning, Dolphins, and welcome to another episode of Dolphins Talk Weekly. I am your host, Kevin Dern. Please give me a follow on Twitter at KevinMD4. You can follow the show on Spotify, iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Look for us. We'll be there. And we finally did it, Dolphins fans. We are officially in game week by the time you listen to this of week one of the regular season. The opponent, the division rival, New England Patriots, coming to Hard Rock Stadium Sunday, 1 p.m. kickoff. It should be a great game. Now, I do apologize for not having an episode up in a while. Um, I once had a professor that told me, you know, sometimes life happens, and, you know, well, well life has happened. It's busy managing a, a two-year-old and a one-month-old and went back to work for the past two weeks for the first time since being off for paternity leave. One of the nice perks of working for AWS is you do get some pretty nice benefits that go with the position. But I haven't had time to do a podcast until now. And, you know, I hate to begin it with a bit of a somber note, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention Jason Jenkins, who, you know, tragically passed away at the age of 47 uh, a little more than a week ago now. Um, Senior Vice President of Dolphins Communication and Community Affairs. As you've probably seen on Dolphins Twitter or heard on other podcasts, you know, or even listened to or seen Mike McDaniel's media interview, obviously Jason, you know, was a phenomenal human being and touched a lot of people's lives and did some great things for the Dolphins and you know, you listen to Mr. Ross and, and Tom Garfinkel speak, and they always talk about being best in class at whatever they do. Well, the football team hasn't always upheld that end of the deal on the field, but through Jason Jenkins' efforts, they've always been best in class off the field and in the community. And I think that's a huge plus for the organization, especially with all the endeavors they're into now. And, you know, my heartfelt condolences go out to you know, his family, his children, and the Dolphins organization. I know it's it's a tragic, terrible loss, and I don't know really what else more to say about that other than I do have one personal story about interacting with Jason Jenkins, which I will share to kick off the podcast. So if you don't know, I used to write for Locked on Dolphins when Travis Wingfield was the host before... Travis joined the actual Dolphins organization, and this was in 2019, so Brian Flores' first year, and Travis invited me to come down and cover their home game against the Bengals right before Christmas that year as a member of the media since I was a writer for Locked On, and I remember going into the press box and, you know, I Travis and I sat directly behind Omar Kelly, Andy Cohen, and Alan Pupar and it was just kind of a thrill for me to be there and, and kind of see how you know the NFL media machine works and 
you know, probably about an hour before kickoff, we were in the press box and Jason Jenkins came over and entered, you know, he and Travis had met before and Jason introduced himself to me, you know, asked what I did for a living, said, I hope you have a great time. You know, you're welcome to go down. They were doing something for the NFL 100 with the 72 Dolphins before the game. So we got to go down and cover that at one of the, um, I guess it's a private area of the main concourse. I'm not super familiar with Hard Rock Stadium. I've only been twice, but he, Jason let us go down there with all the other media members and go back up. Game starts. You know, things are going well. And I think it was just after the kickoff to start the second half, you know, went to go use the restroom. I was on my way back down this hallway towards the media booth, and, and Jason happened to be walking in the hall. And he said, he stopped me and said, Hey, Kevin, you know, are you enjoying the game? And it kind of just blew me away that he remembered my name out of all the people because I, you know, this is the first time I've ever been there. And there's, you know, to give you kind of a sense of scale on the dolphin side of the media area, there were probably, you know, around 100 folks, you know, plus or minus maybe 10. And they were playing the Bengals that day, smaller market, you know, probably 30 or 40 people. And out of all this, he remembered my name and, you know, kind of asked how I was enjoying the game and what I thought of the media booth and, you know, if I was enjoying my time and if I had all the right credentials and stuff to go down to the locker room after the game. Because we had to do uh, Brian Flores' media availability and interview with the players. And it was just really impressive to me because... You know, I don't work in the media full time. It's just kind of something I do as a hobby. And I've worked in the corporate world, you know, I guess for a decade or so now, um, after being in the nonprofit sector for a couple of years. And, you know, there's executives and CEOs who don't take the time to remember your name, especially when you're dealing with, you know, upwards of 150 to 200 people in a three hour period. So it was just really kind of surreal and kind of touching that Jason remembered my name and remembered who I was, you know, just the two of us passing by each other in a hallway. And I think that really speaks volumes to the type of person that Jason was. So, you know, that's my Jason Jenkins story. And, you know, if you listeners out there have your own stories, I'd love to hear them, you know, hit me up on Twitter, send me a DM, you know, whatever you need to do. Jason was such a phenomenal person and I would love to hear more about it. So that's all on, on Jason Jenkins for now. And we'll focus on the matter at hand, which is the New England Patriots in a moment. But kind of wanted to divide the podcast up really into three different sections. We're going to talk about my thoughts on preseason, the games specifically, We'll do thoughts on the the 53-man roster. I'll talk about some of the cuts, what was maybe intriguing to me, what was surprising, what wasn't too surprising. And then finally, we'll round it out by previewing the Patriots game itself at the end of the podcast. Um, I know this is for Dolphins Chalk Josh, um, Josh Katzker, but no new whiskey segment of the week. Um, just keeping it pretty simple tonight with our, our tried and true Lagavulin 8 mm, delicious stuff and there's our sip for the episode so just kind of general thoughts on the preseason 
and I don't know if it's the proliferation of of Twitter and, and widespread use and people, I guess in a sense, wanting to be more involved with the team or cover the team in depth. You know, I get it. I'm doing it myself. But it just seems like there were an inordinate amount of knee-jerk reactions to preseason games. Like, I get it. Fans are excited to see football. And I'm sure if, you know, a bad play happens, you know, in the first quarter of week one against New England, you know, there will be guys that tweet that they're ready to throw in the towel for the entire season. It happens every year. It's like clockwork. It never ceases to amaze me. But the preseason felt a little... (laughs) A little rocky in my sense just trying to follow a couple of the games on twitter um wasn't able to catch any of them live saw the game against the raiders kind of on delay had to watch the other two games um you know the recorded version afterwards but i guess my my basic thoughts would be as far as the defense goes very very basic Looks And I think that's by design. Most teams do that by design because you want to see guys in in one-on-one matchups and evaluate their one-on-one ability. It's almost like watching, you know, the senior bowl in terms of, you know, the the rules that they have for the game. And, you know, you saw Miami do some cover one and some cover three. You're not really bringing the blitz packages. You know, they they showed some 5-0 looks here and there. But you're not bringing the full-scale blitzes. It's pretty straightforward. Offensively, I think we saw the playbook opened a little bit more, at least in terms of the use of of run action and play action stuff, Um, and got guys open by design, which I think is a nice change of pace. The run game looked very vanilla to me especially in the first two games. You know, a lot of it was just trying to get to the outside, and I think it's more lineman evaluation tape than anything else. I think they pretty well knew which running backs were going to be, you know, the heavy eaters in terms of the workload. And we really didn't see things kind of shift until the Philly game, and we got, you know, some pin and pull plays, some tosses, we saw some traps. You know, Liam Eichenberg kind of came alive on some of those plays. We saw some more inside zone, which has kind of been a staple of the Cardinals offense where Chase Edmonds came from. You'll have to excuse uh, my allergies, you know, creeping into the podcast. In southeast Indiana where I live, we've had stretches where it's been high 80s or low 90s during the day. And then, you know, we hit the 50s at night. And the weather change, the temperature change just wreaks havoc on me during ragweed season. So bear with me. But as far as like changes to the overall offense, I think a lot of the play action things are are really good. They're going to benefit Tua. I don't think they showed a whole lot when Tua was in the game. So in a weird sense, I think you kind of glean more about what the offense was going to look like when Skylar Thompson played than when Tua was actually on the field. And, you know, just kind of looking through some of the old 49ers and Falcons playbook segments that that I do have from the Shanahan-McDaniel offense, I can see the positives where a lot of this goes. You're going to be able to hit a lot of things on play action. And I think one of the key factors, especially we saw it in the Philly game, 
where Tua, you know, got the most run of playtime in the preseason is these play action throws, you know, they were mostly going to Trent Sherfield and Cedric Wilson and River Craycraft and, and kind of that second, third wave of the guys that, you know, could have been on the team, you know, with Tyreek, we saw the one bootleg, you know, after the long completion and he got off the field, you know, job done. Um, you can watch Kurt Warner's video on the, the throw and, you know, how Tua's mechanics were a little wonky on that play. You know, that that sort of thing can be straightened out, but I'll, I'll be happy with the 51-yard gain or 55-yard gain, 51-yard throw. Um, but I think it's really interesting to see some of those routes where you see Trent Sherfield getting that open, you see Cedric Wilson getting that open, and you think, okay, it's probably not going to be these guys running these same routes the majority of the time in the game. It's going to be Tyreek Hill or it's going to be Jalen Waddle. And their ability to kind of go from 0 to 60 right after the catch and get yak yards, it has to be tantalizing to think about what this offense can do from that sense. Um, I still think there's some things you're going to have to iron out, especially with teams like New England week one that are going to show, you know, an open or closed middle of the field read pre-snap and shift to something post-snap. You know, that was what bit Tua down the stretch against New Orleans and Tennessee. And they really didn't throw a ton in that finale game against New England because they ran the ball for nearly 300 yards. Those types of things we really kind of have to wait and, and wait until we see them unfold on the field. But I'm very intrigued with the amount of space that was generated for receivers. If you can make these deep over routes, these to, to borrow a Clyde Christensen term, the transcontinental crossing route. If you can start to make some hay with those, and I know coaches love to break the season up into quarters, if you can kind of get that going the first quarter of the season, there are things to kind of build that, build off of that. You know, you can see some Y creeps to the backside where the tight end kind of fakes a block and then runs kind of a short crosser and then goes deep on the backside of those formations. Um, you can see the old tight end throwback play off of that. You can see screens to the backside off of some of those play action things. So I'm excited to see where the offense goes. And I think above all else, even though we didn't see Teron Armstead out there at all during the preseason, a lot of the run action fakes where you literally have the O-line run blocking through the the mesh point of the quarterback and running back, those seem to help generate pretty good pockets. And, you know, really the one negative rep you come away with is the play where Tua got sacked against Philly. I don't think it was a bad rep at the start by Austin Jackson. He kind of ran his man around the arc but kind of gave up on it. And then Tua, instead of stepping up, tried to go wide to the left, not really sensing that pressure. And, you know, at the time, Austin Jackson kind of stopped the block, was right when Tua went into the defender's path and you had a sack. So that one really kind of on both parties, but encouraging to see Austin Jackson be able to take a guy and maybe not have the best first step or two in his kick and run him around the arc. 
you know, that's a positive sign because last year he would have just flat gotten beat. So some intriguing things to see from that type of perspective. And as far as the run game goes, you know, we'll, I'll touch on the Sony Michelle decision in a, you know, when we go over the roster in earnest next. But I think you have a nice variety of, of flavors in the backfield. You know, you have Chase Edmonds, who can do a lot of the inside zone stuff. He's quick enough to do the outside zone stuff. I think he's, you know, if you look at his career in Arizona and even in the preseason, he's shown good enough hands to be able to be a receiving threat out of the backfield. Raheem Mostert is kind of the true wide zone speed type guy, but you can also use him on on some of those inside plays where you run gap scheme, the traps and such. His ability to hit the hole with burst is going to be imperative to mix up the run variety in this offense. Then you look at Miles Gaskin, kind of a guy who can do a little bit of everything, you know, okay, nothing great, but you can kind of rely on him to do both of those things and I think he's always had a pretty nice low center of gravity you know helps being five foot nine but he's done a pretty nice job throughout his career being able to cut back against the grain and I think that's a skill that you know could pay dividends in this offense especially if you start a game kind of hammering to the outside or you know trying to do toss plays with Edmonds or Mostert and then you switch it up to Gaskin and then Savon Ahmed kind of to me seems like, you know, from a pass catching perspective, he's sort of the backup to Chase Edmonds. And from a running perspective, he's sort of the backup to Raheem Mostert. And then I'm also curious to see how Alec Ingold fits into that piece because we didn't see him at all this preseason. We saw Seath and Carter, you know, capably make some of those blocks against Philadelphia's backups. I don't know that I would trust that in a in-game situation, but I think that's why he's probably on the roster is his ability to be a fullback, H-back, slash special teams type guy. And, you know, I guess really with the offense, I'm excited to see where it goes and how they build out the run game to set up the pass. Defensively, we'll talk about this more when we go over Trey Flowers, but I think you've added a couple elements and they even showed something in the Philadelphia game where you went with kind of a weird big nickel package where you had a defensive line playing an even front meaning the center wasn't covered and you had Emmanuel Ogba, Raquan Davis, Christian Wilkins and then the other defensive end was Zach Sealer and then you had I believe it was Melvin Ingram and Jerome Baker were the two linebackers so it's a 4-2-5 heavy, you know, big nickel front with Sealer as a DN who, you know, is the most underrated player in the NFL in my opinion. Does that second end spot become Trey Flowers so you get a little more rush now? Do the Dolphins start to mix in some more of those even fronts? You know, it's it's something that they've had in the playbook dating back to 2019 when Flores was first here is it something that they kind of dive into more? And I know we talked about that last year leading into the season and they kind of never went to it, perhaps because they didn't have that second kind of true D-end type. But that's what Trey Flowers did for, you know, his entire New England career was play 
defensive end along with some other sub roles that he had so I'm interested to see where that goes um, I think with the cover 3 stuff you're going to see a lot of combo coverage especially since Byron Jones is on the PUP to start the year where maybe you have Xavier Howard in man on one side but you're playing a single high with a cover 3 look on the other to help protect whether it's Nick Needham or Keon Crossan, I think those would be the two front runners to step in for Jones. Or, you know, I guess, God forbid, Noah Igbenogany gets tried there in some cases. You know, you've at least got some help over the top with Javon Holland. Um, but that'll be kind of an interesting spot. I don't know that it hurts Miami too much in the first two games against New England and Baltimore. I think in the Buffalo game, that becomes more of a, a, a spot where they're going to circle whoever that corner is and attack. And certainly against Cincinnati, um, I almost think you'd have to do the old Belichickian thing and put Xavier Howard on T. Higgins. Howard has had a lot of success against bigger, taller receivers in his career. And hopefully you can erase him by himself and then work a double on the backside with Jamar Chase. Um, I think if you had Byron Jones, you could operate out of, you know, some cover six and some cover three looks and have more success. So that's going to pose an issue. But I think once you get through that stretch, you could see the Dolphins coverage look a lot more like it did last year in the season before as far as the use of cover one and cover zero looks and things like that. So, you know, I think, too, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the defensive front, especially now that you've added another kind of player who can play as a true D-end to be able to stop the run a little better. And we'll kind of go over those things in the roster here in a moment. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. Guys, Smooth Sack Summer is slowly coming to an end, fellas. If you haven't been scaping for the summer sun, it's not too late to sweep your sack of those pesky pubes. As summer comes to an end and we enter fall, keep your boys clean and fresh just in time for fresh ball fall. The leader in below-the-waist grooming is here to make sure your pubes feel smoother than a beach ball and smell fresher than your girl's pumpkin spice. Start the new season the right way and join over 6 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code DOLPHINSTALK, that's one word, DOLPHINSTALK, at manscaped.com. Now, the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 has everything you need to keep your sweet, sweet sack in check. Inside this package, you'll find the Lawnmower 4.0 Trimmer, Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a Travel Bag to hold your goodies. Their Lawnmower 4.0 Trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on-off switch that can engage a travel lock, and gives you the ability to turn on the 4000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. Did I mention this trimmer is waterproof, too? Whether you're hopping in the shower or hitting up the lake, this razor will devour even the strongest pubes. 
Now that your sack is smooth, lather up with Manscaped's liquid formulations to get that fresh ball fall freshness. The Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant to stay cool in the heat. Their soothing aloe vera formula is the best in the business for below-the-waist freshness, and the clear-drying formula keeps your sack looking and smelling good. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance 4.0 package, the Manscaped boxers and the shed travel bag that will bring your comfort to another level at home and on the go. Keep yourself groomed from head to toe with their Shears 2.0, a luxury nail grooming kit. This kit includes stainless steel nail cutters, tweezers, and grooming scissors. With the performance package, your balls will be ready to impress, but make sure you cover the rest with the Shears 2.0. Again, get 20% off plus free shipping with the code DOLPHINSTALK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code DOLPHINSTALK at manscaped.com. Keep things smooth and fresh as we say sayonara to smooth ball summer and enter fresh ball fall. And again, thank you to the fine folks at Manscaped for sponsoring the Dolphins Talk Weekly podcast. Again, a little bit of a lengthier episode because, well, we haven't had any episodes in the last few weeks and kind of had some thoughts built up and, you know, wanted to talk about the 53-man roster. And, you know, uh, a buddy of mine and I basically did our roster predictions and ended up getting 48 of the 53 guys right. So um, I also felt pretty good about predicting only five wide receivers making it. And if you've listened to the show since March, you've heard me say that Lynn Bowden Jr. was in trouble. I think that was fairly obvious. Um, I've seen a couple people tweet out that he had an impressive preseason. I don't know what games they were watching because he was pretty pedestrian. Same with Preston Williams. They're both gone. You know, neither of those was really a surprise. Um, the one mild surprise for me as far as cuts went was Sony Michelle. And as I mentioned earlier, we I wanted to talk about this. So you look at him as kind of the inside, inside zone runner, sort of the power runner, the big guy at, in the running back room. So everyone else on the roster is 205 pounds or less now. But you look at the situations that they put him in in preseason – third down and short, fourth down and short, low red zone where it's basically goal-to-go scenarios. And he wasn't very successful. You know, let's just be honest. He didn't convert enough. You know, he had the one touchdown run in the Philadelphia game, and otherwise that was pretty much it. And I think it's also come out, I think Barry Jackson reported that he was dealing with an injury and was missing chunks of practice, you know, throughout camp. So that was kind of the one mild surprise, but I, I, I get it. The one big surprise in making the roster to me was Tanner Connor, the wide receiver from Idaho State who's being converted to a tight end. You know, he didn't really do a whole lot in preseason. He's been hurt. I thought his being on the 53-man roster was just sort of to wait and stash him on the IR with a recall option the day after cuts were due. That's come and gone, and he is still here on the roster. And that continues Miami's run of trying to make these weird tight end developmental projects happen. Um, I believe it was either Adam Gase's last year or Brian Flores's first year. They signed Bryce Sturk as an undrafted free agent. He was a defensive end from Montana State. 
that they try to convert to tight end. I think that was under Flores, now that I think about it. They also signed Mel Blunt's son, Jabri Blunt, who was a college basketball player. Tried to convert him to tight end. Now you're doing it with Tanner Connor. And I don't really understand this kind of weird obsession they've got with it. Like, I understand, like, Tony Gonzalez is the shining example of it. Jimmy Graham, you know, is probably number two. But has it really worked out to where you've got a bona fide potential player since then? Like, the best case I can come up with is a guy that I was actually familiar with. And if you go way back and dig up Travis Wingfield and my podcast, The Finalysis, I actually talked about him on there, and that was Mo Alley Cox, who was a tight end for the Colts. He played college basketball at VCU, which was in the conference of the Atlantic 10, where my beloved Dayton Flyers uh, reside. So I'd seen plenty of him and thought, you know, okay, this guy might be able to do it. You know, he's 6'6", 250, just muscled up dude and can jump. Not much of a score in basketball, but I was like, okay, this dude is rocked up enough to play in the NFL, and he's still playing in the NFL. So the Tanner Connor thing is kind of interesting. You know, I know Peter Schrager had mentioned him a couple weeks ago on Good Morning Football. We'll see where that project goes. But otherwise, you know, I thought the cuts were pretty straightforward. Um, I think once we all kind of saw Skylar Thompson in a game, you kind of knew, like, okay, they can't afford to let this guy go. There's, You know, some team's going to scoop him up. He won't be able to clear waivers. Um, so I don't think the three quarterbacks is a surprise. We talked about the running back room. I mean, I'm really intrigued to see how they play with Alec Ingold in the fold. The receiver room, I think those five were clearly the best five all throughout camp and in the preseason games. Um you know, and they've got a, a pretty decent group of guys on the practice squad with Braylon Sanders, River Craycraft. They added Freddie Swain from Seattle, who who has played in regular season games before. So you're good there. You know, going to the tight end room, that's kind of the one spot I feel like could become a pretty big weakness in this offense. Um you know, just kind of looking through it, Tanner Connor's a project. Seathan Carter is sort of a, a backup-type player as an H-back, fullback, and special teams guy. I get that. Hunter Long, I thought, had a pretty nice preseason, you know, from the Raiders game on, especially during camp. But we still don't really, you know, we haven't seen that production come to light in a real game yet. Durham Smythe, I get why they gave him a two-year extension and why he's a fit in the offense. But, man, he his blocking is not anywhere near as good as a lot of fans want to make it out to be. <laughs> um, he's got to get better. And I think you look at that Raiders game, I mean, he got blown up several times, you know, trying to make blocks that would have sprung a long run. And, you know, th- those plays got stopped because of his block, not necessarily the line itself. There was one play in particular where people tried to pin that on Austin Jackson, and, and his, you know that was not the case. It was Durham Smythe making the block but getting blown up in the process that stopped a what would have been a first down run. 
And then you have Mike Isicki, who's sort of the, you know, square peg, round hole situation. We don't really know what he could be in this offense. I see potential for him in the passing game, but there's really no kind of way to discreetly hide his inability to block. You know, you kind of know in these situations where if he's on the field, it's either a play action or or some sort of pass to get him involved, or they're running to the opposite side, unless it's some kind of misdirection play. That is something defensive coordinators in the NFL are good enough to key on and, and exploit. So tight end is a spot that kind of is worrisome to me. Um, you know, I, I think I'll hold a candle for Michael Mayer in the 23 draft at this point, and not just because he's a local kid. Um, that room scares me. The offensive line the five starters don't necessarily scare me just because of how the offense is structured. What scares me is is having an injury to any one of those guys for an extended period of time. Um, you know, Michael Dieter as a backup center, I think, is okay. And I think if you had an injury to a guard, I think the move would be to put Dieter at center and let Connor Williams play guard, maybe. Or Dieter can play guard, but you just I haven't been too impressed with his play. I thought Robert Jones was fine in the preseason. I know Solomon Kinley carries a lot of extra weight, and I know he misses blocks at times and has short arms and all that, but I can't help but feel like he, at his best, outplayed anything Robert Jones did. But I think Robert Jones, at his best, is still better than you know, the low lights of Solomon Kinley. So I think you're going for consistency there. And then Greg Little, you know, had been kind of a wild card. I know that they've cross-trained him at left tackle, right tackle, left guard, and right guard, sort of the new Jesse Davis, if you will, and, you know, lightning strike me down for that name mention. Um, but I thought he performed well against Philly, again, you know, albeit against backups. But I I just can't help like wondering why they didn't go after someone like Justin Skule from the 49ers, you know, unless there's an injury issue there. Um, offensive line depth seems like a pretty scary subject at the moment. You know, but obviously there's, you know, the bottom of the roster is always churn and there's more moves that are going to be made. Maybe they address it at some point, but that depth seems shaky at best to me. Moving over to the defense, well, let's do the special teams. I I think Jason Sanders is back. You've got a veteran punter slash holder and Thomas Morstead who can also do kickoffs and does some onside kick stuff, so you've got some flexibility there. You know, Blake Ferguson, I think, is a very consistent long snapper. Um, he is what, you know you paid for, I guess, in terms of drafting one in the sixth round. Um, And he gets downfield pretty well. I think that's an underrated aspect of his game in punt coverage. So I feel pretty good about that unit. As far as the special teams go, you know, I thought one interesting thing was how much work they gave to Durham Smythe and Hunter Long in the preseason on special team snaps. Um, You've still got the slew of backup linebackers, you know, 
Van Ginkle, Riley, Tyndall, Aguavin that can all play. You have Smythe and Long as other big guys that can play. They have used Jerome Baker on the punt coverage team before. Um, so I'm not necessarily worried about that. I, I know there was some concern over that. But you look at this defensive line group, and I think at least while Byron Jones is no longer is not on the roster, he's on PUP, I think that's probably the strongest unit on the team, other than maybe the receiver room at this point. You know, Raquan Davis, Zach Sealer, Christian Wilkins can play in those odd fronts. They've mixed in some even fronts with them when Emmanuel Ogba comes in to play defensive end. I think if you wanted to do a package where you wanted a little more speed up front and keep a four-man front, you have Trey Flowers now. You know, Trey Flowers got had a pretty successful first year in Detroit under Matt Patricia. I think he had seven or seven and a half sacks and then got bit by the injury bug the last two years and just didn't make sense at that high contract price point. So now you get him here. He can play as sort of that stand-up edge backer. You can play him as a true DN with his hand in the dirt, whereas, like, you can do that to some degree with Jalen Phillips, but I think he's such a good athlete, he's better off as a stand-up rusher at times, or at least in certain packages. And I think the underrated thing about Trey Flowers, if you go back and watch his New England film, Miami cut Adam Butler, so you're losing the nose guy in those 5-0 packages. Now, I think you could very easily put Christian Wilkins or Zach Sealer there, and that's something that Miami did do in preseason just to kind of get some looks there. But Trey Flowers played that role in New England's 5-0 package and did it pretty well. And then I would also invite you, if you really want to watch some X's and O's, the Patriots played Green Bay on Sunday Night Football back in 2018. So you're talking Brian Flores running the defense here. They played four-man nickel fronts most of that game, and the three technique is almost always Trey Flowers. So you're playing him inside, you know, at 270 pounds. You're basically giving Green Bay run looks, and he's still playing very well. So there's some unique things that you can do, and I think Miami might be more inclined to mix in some of those even fronts this year. Um or at least come up with some different looks. You know, we saw him do the extend front. We saw him play that four-man nickel front um, in addition to their normal 3-3 stuff, the 3-4 stuff, and then the 3-2 look with the 5-0 package. Trey Flowers gives him a lot of flexibility. in the linebackers, I think that room was pretty much chalk. Like, I don't think there was any big surprise there. You know, I... One of the cuts that people have mentioned to me a lot, I guess two of them really, were Porter Gustin and Cameron Good. And those were two guys my buddy missed um, that I got right. You know, kudos to him. He got Tanner Connor and Cater Cahoo, who I missed. So those are even more impressive in my eyes, getting those guys right. But a bunch of other people mentioned being upset about Porter Gustin and Cameron Good, both of whom came back to the practice squad. So. It's not like another team, you know, flagged him and identified him and said, we've got to have this dude on waivers. But you look at Porter Gustin, they originally tried to make him sort of that backup to Emmanuel Ogba. And you look at the Tampa Bay game, he played that DN role 
that Ogba plays and just got obliterated by whoever Tampa Bay's right tackle was. I don't even think if Tristan Wirfs was in that game, it wasn't for very long, and Gustin couldn't do anything. So they basically realized, okay, this guy can't do it. Brennan Scarlett was the other guy that they were training for that role. He got injured and ended up on IR, so he's done for the year. So they moved Gustin to outside linebacker, sort of that stand-up edge role. Same with Cameron Good, who kind of was there the entire time. But, like, I get why they're intrigued by Cameron Good. You know, he's got length. His first step is good. He's got long arms. You know, he's got some burst off the ball. But that's really it. You know, watching him trying to set the edge against a run was kind of like watching the defense play with, like, ten guys because he can't do it. He's just not physically strong enough yet. So when you look at the roster math, you think about, okay, when you come down to cuts, look at all the guys on this defense ahead of them, ahead of Gustin and Good, that play on the edge. You have Emmanuel Ogba, who does it as a D-end. You have Jalen Phillips and Melvin Ingram and Andrew Van Ginkle, who do it as edge linebackers. You have Jerome Baker, who does it in certain nickel packages, and I know those are still in the playbook. I've, I've heard from some people attended practices that those are a thing they showed zach sealer doing it in the preseason so that's six guys you know you didn't have brennan scarlet because he was hurt but you signed trey flowers that's seven guys who can play either as a defensive end or as a stand-up edge rusher ahead of porter gustin and cameron good so the roster math just wasn't in their favor and maybe Gustin had a deserved a shot as a backup, but not when you have the the group of guys that you have, especially if Van Ginkle is on track to play week one. In the secondary, um, I think safeties were pretty much chalk. I know a lot of people were disappointed about Verone McKinley, but like you watch that Tampa game, he got a chance to play in true single high looks. I know he lined up in single high a lot of times, but they played a lot of cover three out of it against the Raiders and against the Eagles. But in the Tampa Bay game, they put him out there in true cover one looks. And I think they tested one was against Noah Igbenogany and one was against Keon Crossan. And he was late getting over for both of them. Keon Crossan got a pass breakup. And I think Noah Igbenogany got a penalty. But both cases, you should have your safety over the top or at least perpendicular to the play to come break up the catch point and McKinley's just not fast enough to do that I think he's more of a a guy that you should make an understudy to like Brandon Jones so maybe next year if Eric Rowe you know whose contract expires doesn't come back and Jones moves up the depth chart maybe that opens a hole for McKinley or if you need like a special teams only contributor to come in during the season that's something to watch for um as far as the cornerback depth goes, like you obviously have Xavier Howard. You know, I, I read a stat today that he's got the lowest passer rating allowed of any corner since 2020 in press coverage, which is music to your ears if you're Josh Boyer. And, and music to your ears if you're a Dolphins fan, that's what you let him do. And with all the other things you can do with him, having him play off, having him play trail, having him play in cover six you know, doing some of the flat trap stuff out of cover five, dude can do it. Byron Jones being out is a blow. 
and I, personally, I think Keon Crossan is going to get the the outside reps. Nick Needham is is better in the slot than he is outside, and I think with Crossan's speed, you can at least live with that. You know, in terms of not getting beat deep. You know, maybe you lose some physicality battles in terms of routes being run on him, but you know, I don't think the Byron Jones loss is, is insurmountable. You know, it's you're going to have to work around it against Buffalo and Cincinnati for sure. But if he's able to come back in Week Five, I think you're fine. Um, Cater Kahu, I thought deserved a spot. You know, Igbenogany. I think really the only reason they didn't cut him is because of the salary cap ramifications of his first-round contract. Um, but, like, you can see the flashes. You can see the athletic ability. I think it's the mental game and you know, the confidence factor and, and, I guess, you know, situational recognition, you know, that those plays against the Raiders where he's giving up inside releases on a third-down play where you see a lot of slants being run. It's just bad, you know. That's a coaching thing, but like, as a player, you you need to know that. And you know he he just doesn't seem to get it. And I would hope you keep him as far down the depth chart as possible for now, and you know, barring injuries. The other spot with the secondary, you know, I think it's really strong. You know, you've got a lot of pieces that work. But if something happens to Javon Holland, you don't really have anybody that you can play deep in single high. You're going to have to operate out of split safety looks. So that's a depth thing right now that would concern me. So maybe that's a spot that you have, you know, sort of Elijah Campbell, who made the roster earmarked for. I know he was, you know, a corner under Flores last year. They've kind of cross-trained him as a safety. He played both at Northern Iowa. So... You know, you've got some flexibility, but, you know, you hope nothing bad happens to Javon Holland. You don't have to find out what your solution is beyond him. Now, you know, as far as the Patriots game goes, week one kickoff in Miami, it's going to be hot. It's going to be humid. The Patriots are coming down, I believe, on Tuesday to get acclimated to the heat and humidity down here. It's a strategy that, to my knowledge, at least in recent years, only Detroit in 2018 has done. Matt Patricia brought the Lions down here on like Wednesday of that week, and they ended up beating Miami, I think, 32 to 21 or 32 to 23, um, and dropped Miami to four and three. And they kind of went in a tailspin, you know, that Adam Gase couldn't get them to recover from. You look at New England, and like you look at this roster. The receiving core doesn't really scare me a ton. You know, I think the running game, and in particular their use of Johnny Smith, the tight end, who um, a little birdie has told me will get carries in the run game as a tight end, is something to watch for. You know, in addition, they have Ty Montgomery, who can play receiver, played running back in Green Bay for a number of years. It's kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He's on the roster. You have two kind of downhill backs with Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson. You have Pierre Strong Jr., who a lot of Dolphins fans should be familiar with 
given the draft coverage this year, who can fly. I think the key to this game is is really stopping their run and making Mac Jones beat you. Um, you look at the defense, one of the things the Patriots haven't done in a while, I don't believe they've done this since 2014, is list their depth chart as a 4-3 look. Now, it's, it's going to be under and over fronts because they have Matthew Judon on the edge, and they're going to play in a bunch of different sub-fronts. But they're pretty stout through the middle with Devon Godshaw, Christian Barmore, and Jawan Bentley. Um... You know, I'm intrigued to see what they do. They have an absolute missile of a strong safety in Kyle Duggar. They have, you know, kind of a Swiss Army Knife player in Jabril Peppers there. And, you know, I think what's more is the Patriots basically are, I would say, at the cutting edge in terms of being able to stop the Shanahan run game with some of the fronts that they run. You know, they're gonna we're going to see fronts that the Dolphins run run by the Patriots. We're going to see that 4-3 extend. We're going to see six men up front. We're going to see the five-man big nickel. It's going to be a replay of their 2018 Super Bowl game against the Rams defensively. So this is one of those games where I think both teams are going to try and grind it out. It's going to be ugly. You don't want to get pulled down into the muck. You want to be able to build a lead and kind of use the heat to your advantage you know, it's going to be relatively low scoring, in my opinion. You know, you look at these games that the Dolphins have played the Patriots over the years, at least since, or at least the three games with Tua, you've scored what? 22 points, 17 points. They scored 33 in the finale last year, but, you know, six of that came on that weird fumble recovery on the very last play of the game by Sam McWavin. So it's really 27 points. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be pretty surprised if Miami blew out the Patriots. I'd be pretty surprised if New England blew out the Dolphins. Um, but I think that's what you're going to see is, is hybrid defensive fronts, even fronts, odd fronts from both teams, lots of heavy sub fronts trying to stop the other team's run game. And I think, you know, really the three keys to the game would be, number one for Miami, stop the run and make Mac Jones beat you. I trust Miami's secondary more than I trust the Patriots' passing game, which is, you know, their offense is being co-coordinated by Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, and they're trying to run sort of the Sean McVay variant of the Shanahan tree offense. It hasn't looked very pretty in the preseason. I don't suspect it'll look super pretty on Sunday. Uh, but I also think that the Patriots will make it so that Miami's offense doesn't look as super pretty as we'd like it to look either. Key number two would be blitz and pressure pickups. Um, that's sort of, I, I think, kind of the MO of, about the Dolphins now across the league is is if you can get edge pressure on Tua, you can force him into making some bad decisions. And really in none of the games of the three wins he has against New England has he come away sort of unscathed in the passing game. You know, they barely trusted him to throw the ball in the finale last year through a costly interception in week one and basically got bailed out by the Xavier Howard forced fumble. 
even in the game in 2020, he threw an interception in the end zone, you know, rallied the team later and made amends for it. But let's not pretend like it's been sunshine and rainbows for Tua passing against the Patriots. And I think their secondary is, is fairly underrated, although you might be able to have some success on the outside against their corners, Jalen Mills and Jonathan Jones especially if you're able to hit a lot of the quick game stuff the way they did last year in week one. That was mostly RPO stuff to Devontae Parker. But if you can hit some of those quick game things with Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle, you can open them up a little bit. Key number three would be to win the special teams battle. I think hidden yardage is going to be crucial in this game. You know, it's probably going to be a game where you have to kick multiple field goals on both sides. So be able to win that special teams battle. I think ultimately Miami wins this game, but I think it's going to be kind of ugly, like 22-16, to 24-17, 20-17, 21-16, something like that. Um, I think, you know, you look at the script of how these games have kind of gone. New England hits a big run early on the ground. Miami has to recover. They get some points. New England kind of battled back in the second and third quarters, and the Miami puts a drive together in the fourth quarter and, you know, kind of hangs on for the game. I don't really see the script going much differently than that. Um, it'd be a big surprise, but a welcome surprise if Miami was able to kind of get the run game going and hit some explosive plays against New England. Um,. You know, I'm excited to see what this offense looks like. And, you know, I still every game day, I kind of get that same nervous feeling in my stomach like I did when I played back in high school. It didn't matter if we knew we were winning the game by 40 going in. I was nervous until the first hit. And that's kind of how I feel with the Dolphins. Um, but I love that feeling. I love, you know, kind of living and dying with this team. And I'm excited for that to be back, you know, a week from today as I record this. So with that being said, again, thank you for listening. Sorry for the hiatus. Please follow along with the show on iTunes, Spotify, Spreaker. Follow me on Twitter at KevinMD4. Would love to hear any stories you have about Jason Jenkins or any questions you have about the Dolphins, the roster, the schedule, the Patriots game, all of it. Um, Have a great week. Sunday can't get here fast enough. Fins up.